Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopez, and today my guest is Dr. Mark Blythe. He is William R. Rhodes Professor of International Economics at Brown University. His research interests lie in the field of international political economy. He is also the author of books like Great Transformations, Economic Ideas and Institutional Change in the 20th Century, and Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea. So, Dr. Blythe, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It is my pleasure. So far. <laughs> okay, let's see how it goes. Okay, so let me ask you first. Uh, what is this idea, this economic idea of austerity, and where does it come from? Well, that will take the full hour, so let me try and give you the short version. Um, the contemporary variant says the following. Markets left on their own are largely self-correcting. While there can be mistakes by individual firms and individuals, in the aggregate, markets don't fail. When they do, it's a special case called market failure, blah, blah, blah. What that means is that recessions shouldn't happen. But they do. And big recessions, quad depressions, also come along from time to time. And that's not in the theory. So what's going on? Well, regardless of what causes it, at the end of the day, the most important members of capitalist society are the investor class. Because without investment, there is nothing. So let's assume that bad things have happened to the economy. What that means is the investor class is now spooked. One of the things that spooks them is excessive government debt. Why does excessive government debt spook them? Because it says that rather than accepting the fact that things have gone wrong and allowing for some unemployment and a recession to reset the machine, what you're going to do is artificially bail the system out and you're going to run deficits. Those deficits are going to turn into debts and then your debt burden is going to get really high. And what that means going forward is you're going to spend more money uh, servicing your debt rather than on things like public investment and infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And it also means that at some point you're going to have to raise taxes to pay for all that debt, and that's going to come out of the investor classes. So if you believe that the way to solve a recession is then to make the investor class feel confident, hence the whole notion of confidence in the economy. What you should do is cut your budget deficit as small as possible, cut your spending in order to get there, don't raise taxes, at least don't raise taxes on those people. And then what will happen is when the economy stabilizes, they will be more than happy to put their investment back in and thus the show will continue. So essentially, it's a way of protecting the assets of the investor class through a downturn if you want to put it that way, mm -hmm. under the guise of saving the economy as a whole. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I, I think it's very interesting because it puts a lot of emphasis on external debt. But I mean, isn't it true that from an historical perspective, it wasn't always the case that countries and governments really did care that much about external debt? Well, it's not just external debt. It's more the notion of what capitalism has always had an uneasy relationship with is democracy. And in the classical period of the 19th century, there were very few democracies, but there was a lot of capitalism. And what that meant was that the, the sort of the liberal elite in the 19th century sense, the investor class, were the ones that ran politics. 
Now, when you run politics like that, you can run a gold standard internationally because it makes wages and prices domestically, as you call it, the mechanism of adjustment for the trade balance. And that means a lot of volatility and uncertainty for labor. And it also means that when things go badly wrong, it's handy if you, have a, if you don't have a democracy. But when you do have a democracy, there's always the fear amongst the elite that we can essentially vote ourselves their assets. And therefore, they become extremely worried about levels of debt in general because that becomes a future claim on their income streams because they are the tax base under a democracy. So, you know, it's rather the internal debt, external debt. It's really essentially how class politics refracts itself through debt. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and I think that before we get more specifically into the European Union and some other places in the world where this idea had some negative consequences, uh, could you also explain to us the concept of ordo liberalism? Because it seems to be also connected with austerity and other things like that. Well, yeah, as I say in the austerity book, there's a, a chapter I open with with a description of a postcard which sits on my fridge which says, erst sparen, dann kaufen, which in German means first save, then spend. And there's recently been a big exhibition in Berlin, actually, all about Sparenkultur in Deutschland from the 19th century and all this sort of marvelous stuff. And it's all a complete fiction, basically. The entire thing was organized by the government to pay for, basically, arms build-ups in the 19th century and things like zeppelins. But nonetheless, there's this idea that people have this savings culture. Um, now, what does ordo liberalism fit into this? Ordo liberalism is a, a variant of liberal theory that uh, is described beautifully in, amongst other sources, Quinn Slobodian's recent book, Globalists. And essentially, while Western analysis have talked in general about neoliberalism, basically this kind of post-1970 rediscovery and turbocharging of the ideas of classical liberalism, there's an indigenous German version of this that comes from Freiburg in the 20s and the 30s which actually comes out of Austria and Geneva in the 1870s or the 1890s, which is really about what Quinn calls post-Habsburg uh, stress disorder. So for the 19th century liberals, the Habsburg Empire was this beautiful machine whereby labor could move seamlessly from one place to another, never worrying about carrying a passport. We were all citizens of the empire. It was one big set of markets joined together with these hubs that you had in Vienna and, and, and in, um, in Hungary. And uh, it was wonderful. And of course, it was all torn apart. And when it was torn apart, we were replaced with nationalism and socialism and all these terrible ideas. And one of the offshoots of that whole sort of breakup was this Freiburg notion of order liberalism. And the idea is that the role of the state is not to get out of the way of markets, but to structure market competition in such a way that markets work more efficiently. So it's a very German version of liberalism, which accepts the necessity of the state, but tries to sidestep, if you will, the classical liberal problem of the state being strong enough to protect your property. It's also strong enough to take your assets by giving it a new role which is essentially to make sure that money is stable and above all competition is strong enough so that you don't end up with cartels or monopolies that are rent seekers. That basically is sort of the economic version of that. The political version of that that sort of fed into it is the essence on competition rather than compensation in economic crises, which means it's completely antithetical to kind of Keynesian logics of demand, stimulation, et cetera, et cetera. 
<laughs> okay, very well. And I wanted to ask you about that precisely now to make the connection with what what has been happening in the European Union, because uh, it seems to me that, that ordo-liberalism is a very German concept, as you refer to. Uh, and I mean, since its very inception, I would say the European Union has been economically structure, structured in a way that gives uh, Germany a central place and leaves um, mostly the more peripheral, more peripheral countries like the southern ones uh, less able to keep up with it economically, even though at the same time they, they are required to try to do so. Right? Yes. So, I mean, in a sense, this was to, to, to invoke something else from that part of the world. This was a Faustian bargain, but it was a Faustian bargain that everyone knew they were getting into. So what was the problem that the EU was trying to solve? Well, arguably, if you put away the strategic considerations, it was trying to solve the problem of the Germans being too big and too efficient. So if the Germans were de facto setting monetary and trade policy for everyone else in Europe, because what it meant was in order for Italian manufacturers to compete with German manufacturers, they periodically had to devalue the currency. And in doing that, what also was import inflation and a stagnation in real wages. So the idea was, let's have one currency. And that way, we're kind of tying the Germans to a common position and one central bank to set the interest rate. And then we'll all converge. Well, we didn't really converge because there's no fiscal capacity that's common. There's no common banking um, system. There's no common capital markets of any depth. And you still have discrete economies with very different industries, very different business cycles, et cetera, et cetera. So ultimately, the thing that it's trying to solve is only solvable if you either take the next step and build all those institutions, which is what Macron and others have been talking about, and to have what the French call a government economique, uh, which is really sort of building a state at the transnational level, which is what he has always been, which is, okay, you've got 15, 17 different uh, countries in the Eurozone, 20, however, uh, 23, I can't even remember, in the, in the overall agreement. For the ones that are in the Eurozone, the, the deal's pretty simple. There's a set of common rules to do with debts and deficits. And if everybody adheres to those, the system will work fine. But if you don't, there's a problem, because what it means is you're basically getting transfers from one part of the union to the other, which if we were a unified democratic polity, we could agree to do, but we haven't. So therefore, there's a problem. Now, what this also means is that the most efficient country gets to set not just the rules, but the pace of economic activity. So what it gives the Germans in particular is a relatively undervalued exchange rate relative to what they would have if they had their own currency. That gives them a competitive advantage in exports. And what that does is for their supply chain countries, basically Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, etc., the Eastern European countries, this has actually been a great model because they integrate and become part of Germany's supply chain. Their wages are relatively low and the productivity is relatively high, or at least it can go high. So if you go to Romania just now, CBU is a boomtown, right? It's, it's doing great. But the other side of that, you've got the big consumption-led economies like Spain and Italy and France to a certain extent, and they don't globalize. They're not export champions. They're consumption-driven. And they're forced to run deficits, but the rules say that they can't run these deficits. That's basically the problem, one of the problems that Italy's facing. And when you do this, the alternative is everybody has to be Germany. Well, you can't be Germany. The reason that Germany is Germany is because everyone else is not Germany. 
You can only export if someone's willing to import. So the EU's solution is to impose a common set of rules on everyone in the absence of a proper democratic settlement, and then to try and run a giant trade surplus against the rest of the world, most of that coming through Germany. Well, if everyone could be Germany, that would be working, we'd all be, would work and we'd all be happy. The problem is we can't all be Germany, and it certainly doesn't work for France. And it really doesn't work for Spain, and it certainly doesn't work for Italy. And that's why the politics in the South take a very different cast from the politics in the North. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So let's go back a little bit historically, because I think that what happened during the 70s, and you also already touched touch a little bit on this during that period of stagflation that occurred in several major countries and economies, uh, was this one of the central historical points which gave credence to these ideas about austerity and things like that? Because, I mean, we've been talking about the European Union, but these ideas have also gained some leverage in, in, in the US and, also, and they're also applied, I think, by the IMF and other institutions like that more yeah. generally. The subtitle of the austerity book was The History of a Dangerous Idea. And the definition of a dangerous idea is one that is immune to empirical refutation. So it doesn't matter how much evidence you throw at this thing that says it doesn't work, you're going to keep getting it. And why you keep getting it? Because it's class politics. Now, at the end of the day, austerity, one of the ways I described it is to use the language of finance as a class-specific put option. And what a put option is, is basically you can agree to buy something in the future at a certain price, but you don't actually need to, right? So it's like an insurance policy. Things go wrong, you can pick it up. So when a recession goes on, you could either tax the rich and force them to eat their losses as the investor classes, or you can basically, in a sense, tax the poor by cutting spending, cutting programs that benefit them. And that's basically how class politics worked out. Now, the reason this went away for a while is because that type of politics was made impossible by a combination of the Great Depression, World War II, the rise of fascism, and the rise of communism which created for around 30 years what the Europeans call and the French call Le Trente Glorious and what the Italians call Il Boom, right? Those eras and also the Americans called sort of, you know, the great Haiti of the American middle classes where the bottom of the income distribution went up, the top went down and the whole distribution jumped up and effective taxation went up, particularly on the top, it was prog highly progressive. And uh, also what we did was we effectively nationalized economies. Rather than having economies as part of a global network where we produce different things as part of a supply chain, you had relatively sort of homogenous units where we all made the same stuff and basically traded it with each other. We insulated our financial markets. We meant the capital couldn't go wherever it wanted to fend the highest return. It had to invest at home. And because it was invested at home, the only way it could maintain profitability was by investing to increase productivity. And that's what allowed the wages to grow. Now, this is all great and it worked for a while, but eventually what happens is it begins to generate, for lots of reasons, generates inflation. Inflation is a tax on profits. And essentially, if I'm an investor and I think over a five-year horizon, I'm going to get a 7% rate of return. If inflation goes to 8%, I might as well take the money around the back of the house and burn it because I'm losing money. So the 70s became basically a real conflict, a moment of conflict for capital, because at that point in time, the investor class capital, call it what you want, was losing real money because of the settlement that had been enshrined in the post-war order of 45 of relatively closed welfare states. And that's, in a sense, what Reaganomics was about. That's what Thatcher was about. That was the neoliberal revolution. That was privatized, deregulate, globalize, integrate. 
everything was a response to basically leaching uh, inflation out of the system, particularly by deregulating labor markets and attacking trade unions. Because without those types of institutions, someone else. And without that, and a business had similar types of um, big business isolated structures, national champions in France, that sort of stuff, where you could also push on prices So what to, to others. So what neoliberalism was, in a way, through privatization, deregulation, integration, was a way of taking all of the inflationary air out of these economies and globalizing those economies. And when you do that, you also change the politics drastically, because then it becomes possible once again to say, oh, look, there's a recession. Well, obviously, the only way we're going to deal with this is if we cut spending, rather than what you'd have in the 1960s was if there's a recession, we need to basically issue, we need to run a bigger deficit to support growth. We'll have more debt, and then we'll pay it back with the higher level of growth that we achieve. The problem was that model never quite worked, in part because the weakness in Keynes was never the economics, it was the politics. Politicians love the upside, hate the downside. So when it came time to basically chill the, to slow down the cycle, once they'd restored growth or to pay back the debt, they always found something else to do. And that's where the inflationary problem in part came from. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and what about the historical relevance of the 2007-2008 economic crisis? I mean, uh, what were some of the manifestations of the uh, practical issues uh, in regards to this idea of austerity and some of, uh, some of the policies that some countries put into place and how they dealt with the fact that some banks went bankrupt and they bailed them out and things like that. And, and what are some of the worst consequences that all of that has been having through since then? So the global financial crisis cost probably about $20 trillion. In compensation, central banks put about $17 trillion back into the economy. Central banks don't actually print money. What central banks do is essentially borrow from the future. So by printing money and liquidating the system, you're making a bet that future growth will basically make that whole. And we bailed the whole system rather than let it fail. Well, why? Well, because of all those things we discovered, like too big to fail. Systemic risk will destroy the whole system. And the lovely thing about arguments like that is You can never test them. It's like nuclear war. You can only imagine fighting it. If you ever fight it, you die. Because what happens if you decide to call the banks bluffs and say, no, you're not too big to fail. You should all fail. Well, what are the bank's assets? The bank's assets are your liabilities. What are your liabilities? The bank's assets. Why is that relevant? Well, the bank's assets can things like your house, your pension. So when you say let the banks fail, you're really saying, yeah, I think we should take a massive chance with all of the assets that I have, which are their liabilities and vice versa, and we should just let them fail. Now, when you consider how unequal the world has become over the past 30 years, the vast majority of those assets, 80 to 90%, are concentrated in the hands of the top 10%. And it's really the top 10% of the 10% and the top 10% of the top 10%, 10%, as we know, right? So essentially what you're saying is to the richest and most powerful people in society, hey, you're the guys that really run the banking system. You made all these crazy bets. You should lose your shirt. It's not our problem. To which they said, no, it is your problem because if I go down, everything goes down with you. So here's how we're going to pay for this. You're going to use the central banking authority to keep the system liquid. And you're going to generate big public sector debts 
taking the cost of this recession and basically seeing us through to the end of this, recapitalizing the banks, doing all the things that we need to do so that we are whole and you will pay for the costs of it through massive recession costs, unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. Now, where this takes a particularly nasty cost is when you're in a currency union and you don't have your own printing press. Because if you have your own printing press, at least you can do this pseudo-democratically. The Brits decided to bail their banks, they bailed their banks. They actually needed the Americans to give them dollars, but that's an unnecessary complication. So if you're Greece, you've got a problem. So let's make no mistake, Greece was a terribly run country. It was two families masquerading as two parties, or two parties masquerading as two families, that were basically taking turns at ripping off the state for the prior 30 years by pretending to pay taxes. They went into the crisis with 100% debt to GDP. That is inexcusable. But at the same time, Greece is a rounding error. It was 2% of G Eurozone GDP. What they should have done was taken all of the Greek debt that was subject to what's called rollover risk in the markets and bought it and stuffed it on the balance sheet of the central bank and everyone would have forgotten about it. But the mantra of austerity says, no, 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 those people have sinned. Those people have erred. Look at all that debt. They've been spending like drunken sailors. Somebody else is controlling the belt. So the belt gets tightened. And unfortunately, rather than restoring confidence and restoring growth, as it's meant to do, it just produced a massive economic recession lasting 10 years. Now, what has this done? It's reduced the Greek economy to 1.6% of Eurozone GDP. It has made a generation of Greeks leave home and probably not come back, which means that the even bigger tax liabilities they have now, because their debt's now 180% of GDP, definitely will never get paid back. We have, in fact, destroyed that country by adherence to this doctrine. And at the same time, we've poisoned European relations by setting the sinners in the South against the saints in the North, the creditors in the North against the debtors in the South, none of which was necessary, but all of which was written into the script once you framed this as a problem of excessive debt and austerity, rather than what it was. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I, I've just lost you there for a few seconds, but okay. Okay, uh, okay so, so what was the last thing that you said? Sorry. Oh, I said uh, that ultimately when you create the polarization of politics in the Eurozone amongst northern sinners, uh, northern saints and southern sinners, you end up, you know, with the kind of crappy nationalist politics we have now. And we didn't have to do that. But what part of what brought us to this point is the use of austerity doctrines to basically polarize the Eurozone as a polity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so would you say that at least at the level of the European, or European Union back then in 2008, the, uh, people could have put into practice some uh, alternative economic solutions instead of what they did? Be, uh, or is the European Union economically and politically structured in a way that doesn't really leave much room to do that? Well, unfortunately, there's a bit of truth in both perspectives. So if you think about it, what did Draghi do to end the crisis by reducing the yields on Italian and Spanish bonds? What he did was he said three words, whatever it takes. And what he was referring to is the mandate of the central bank. And the mandate of the central bank, if you read it, and you also read Article 125 of the Treaty of European Union, says a lot of things. You can fit a lot of things under stable prices and prosperity, right? You can do a lot there. Now, is it the case that without a unified budget, you can't really do sort of Keynesian counter-cyclical spending? Well, Spain was doing pretty well until the predecessor of Jean-Claude Trichet, sorry, the predecessor of Mario Draghi at the ECB, Jean-Claude Trichet, phoned them up and said, 
unless you guys stop doing this right now, we're not going to bail out your cajas because you don't have your own printing press. Your cajas, your regional banks that are all up to their neck and real estate loans, these guys are going to fail. We don't like that you're doing this counter-cyclical anti-austerity policy. Stop now. Read um, uh, the ex-Prime Minister, um, is it Gonzalez? I forget his name, his um, biography about this period. Also, there's a book by Cornell Bann um, uh, called Ruling Ideas, which goes into this case in detail if people want to, to follow it up. Um, so there were always, it was always political. There were always moments of choice. So they could have done something else. You could have bought the Greek debt, put it on a balance sheet, forgot about it, it would have been fine. Uh, you wouldn't have had the pigs, you wouldn't have contagion, you wouldn't have had any of that stuff. However, the other side is also true. The German government is responsible to the German electorate. It is not responsible to the Greek electorate. And solidarity is one thing, but essentially bailing out a country that can't be bothered to raise taxes for 30 years, that's a really hard sell. Right? So it's not just the fiscal mechanisms, it's the assumed solidarity that was in the middle of it that was never there. What began as an economic project was meant to mature into a political project, but it never did. So when the, when, you know, when the crisis came, you were asking lots of different countries with lots of different interests to shoulder burdens, which would be very hard for them to explain to their taxpayers. Now, they might have been able to do that if it hadn't been for the fact that the European crisis hits in 2010. And by 2011, this is when, for example, French banks are running out of their ability to borrow in short-term markets in London and New York. There's a real crisis in the Eurozone at that point in time and sovereign bond deals are up. This is three years after Lehman. So what happened was governments came out in 2008 and said, look, I know, look, we've got Hippo Real Estate Bank, we've got Commerce Bank, we've got this Landis Bank over here, we've got Fortis in Belgium. Uh, we know these guys are bad, but trust us, too big to fail. We have to bail them out. We have to bail them out. So the public went, okay, we don't like it, but you can do it. So imagine if you came along in 2011 and said, hey, remember that bank bailout? Turns out it's just getting started. We need to do that again because it turns out that we Germans have been buying all this Greek debt and it's up in Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank has a huge amount of leverage and tiny, tiny amount of assets. So if Greece goes bad and Ireland goes bad, the whole thing falls down and you lose your pension. So we need to bail them out too. It's much easier to turn around and say, those lazy Greeks, well, that's uh, I'm afraid that they're just going to have to pay this time. And that's the politics. Mm -hmm. Yes, and this is this is very interesting because particularly this issue about economic inequality growing over the past several decades, particularly in the West, uh, it has some sociological and also political implications. So, for example, you also talk about in your work about global Trumpism and the rise of political populism, both on the right and the left. So could you tell us about that? Well, I mean, we've alluded to it already. I mean, essentially, if you make the people who are not really responsible for a banking crisis pay for a banking crisis through lost opportunity, lost growth, lost services, lost life chances, and you've already created a world in which wages have been basically stagnant while profits have been increasing, hence inequality, and then wages don't increase for a whole 10 years, and the people who brought you the financial crisis were the people who said, everything's fine, what could possibly go wrong? And it turns out that they're okay, 
after the crisis. It turns out their kids are still going to the same fancy universities. It turns out that San Francisco and New York and London and Paris are all doing great. But if you go outside of those places, not so much. They know what they're talking about, particularly when you get into a decade-long recession in Europe, which pits country against country. So the response of this is quite interesting. If you have a look at the South, what you tend to have, if you think Portugal and Greece, but also to a certain extent, just to a certain extent, Italy, you have, with Five Star, that you have a kind of southern debtors coalition. They're the ones that were all the debtor countries. And that tends to be a left-wing coalition. And what you've got in the north is it's a right-wing populism, a nationalism of we are the people who did the good things. We bailed you out. We are the right and proper ones. So ironically, you know, nationalist, nationalism is written into the austerity script. Now, combine wage stagnation with frustrated expectations with a lack of faith in elites. And, and, and a great deal of hypocrisy on the part of the ruling classes. I mean, let's remember things like Manuel Barroso, who was the chairman of the commission, leaving the commission and going straight to Goldman Sachs. Remember the British government under Gordon Brown, which was really Tony Blair's third administration. When they lost the election, almost every single person on that government bench went to work in finance, the very thing that they'd bailed out. I mean, you know, the hypocrisy is astonishing. So I don't think it's surprising at all that a great many people have decided, you know, we actually, we have no faith in the people who run this show. We don't think they know what they're talking about. And ultimately, this is bullshit. My life hasn't gotten better in any way at all for the past 20 years. While they're all making off like incredible, it's time for a change. And now, you know, that's not the exhaustion of populism. People point to, and quite rightly point to, you know, ethno-nationalism, racism, etc. But it's funny, in Spain, there's very little of that. Even with Golden Dawn, there's very little of that in those southern debtor countries. It seems that national chauvinism is the privilege of the creditors. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and, and it's, it's also very interesting because then all of these things happen, like Brexit and Trump's win in the election and, and things like that. And I mean, even in the European Union, uh, populists usually say that people have to leave the, the EU and I mean even though the solutions they propose might not be the best most of the time they are at least partially true that uh, the EU is to blame for these situations. Well let's, let's be let's be you know let's be clear and let's be kind on this I mean Italy's major problem is that long before the euro happened the governments in Italy basically did the same as the governments in Spain they said why raise taxes when we can issue debt and then when they joined the Eurozone, they got Germany's credit rating. So they, particularly in Greece, not so much in Italy, they really went for it. So now that the countries have gotten older, they've been through a very long mishandled crisis. Austerity has not helped. You still have a fundamental problem. You've got massively indebted countries with old populations that are barely growing. Now, that hasn't been helped by the EU, but it's not just down to the EU. Second thing is, go bigger than the EU. If you look at the euro, the problem with the euro is it's the Hotel California problem. You can check in, but you can't check out. So let's say I'm an Italian right-wing populist, and I'm waving my fist all the time in the EU. All right, go on, have a referendum on whether you want to go back to the lira. The minute you do that, any Italian that has euros as assets, as the cash they use, and has a house that's denominated in euros, and has an insurance policy that's denominated in euros, will be trying to find an address, a post office box, and a bank account in Germany. 
Because if that referendum goes the way that the populists want, that means that your house will be worth 50% less. Because the new currency will take a massive devaluation against the euro. And that means that your house, your pension and everything else is about to be denominated into a script which is half or less of the value what it is just now. This will result in a giant flood of capital out of Italy into Germany in advance of any attempt to do this, which brings about the very crisis you're trying to avoid. There's no way out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 that's a big problem. Okay, so j just one last question. At the present moment, what would you say could be some economic solutions to consider and to put on the, on the table, if not to completely get out of this situation, at least to improve it? I think we need to get, first of all, we need to be creative. We need vastly, vastly different policies than the ones that we have now. We need to think about things in a very different way. So one, I'm trying to write a book just now about this. About What we need to do is we need to stop creating a world that's filled with debt and think about a world that's created with a world of equity. So how do we do this? Well, think about this. If you want to do something about inequality over the long run, this isn't about marginal changes over the next few years. It took us 30 years to become this unequal. It will take us 20 years to become more equal. So how would you do that? Imagine the following. Every time there's a financial crisis, the government's cost of capital falls to zero. Here's what I mean by that. The stock market's falling, so you sell your equities. The fact that you're selling your equities pushes the price down. They're sitting with cash. The cash isn't earning anything. The cash could get worth less. So what do you want to buy? You buy gold. Gold goes through the roof. Gold gets too expensive. What do you do? You buy government bonds. Why? Because Germany will be there in 10 years. America will be there in 10 years. Hell, even Italy will be there in 10 years. So at least your money's safe. But the demand for bonds is so great that the interest rate paid on them becomes negative. So what governments could easily do at that moment is buy all the equities that everyone's dumping put them into a public fund, and this time we don't give them back to the private sector. We take the profits off that over the next 10 years, and then we distribute those profits both to pay back the debt we issued, but more importantly to, the, to let's say, the bottom 50% of the bottom 80% of the income distribution. You could give them massive, massive windfalls for help with education, housing, mobility, whole host of issues without taxing anyone. So, you know, there are real, we've got to think bigger in terms of the scale. Second thing is, ultimately the only thing that's going to matter for the generation coming after my generation, which is probably your generation, is climate change, and we are doing nothing. So we need to build not just policies, we need to build a recognition that it doesn't matter whether you think that you're Polish or Swedish or Italian or whatever, nature bats last, and she's coming with a very big bat for all of us. So either we get serious about working together to solve those problems as a solution, which would be a huge investment opportunity for the private sector, which would create hundreds and hundreds, if not millions of new jobs right, worldwide. Um, there's a, you know, a way of harnessing this crisis to make it very, very productive. But again, no one's saying that. And most of all, what we need is we need a politics people can believe in. The notion that we have technical fixes for everything is just a bullshit politics that no one has any faith in because it implies a degree of control and sophistication that policymakers simply don't have. But what we need is a vision that people can get behind that says, yeah, if we do this for the next 10 years, my life gets better and so does everybody else's. What could be wrong with that? And what's lacking and what's really crucial in this moment is that political vision. 
And I think anybody who's got a heart, anybody who's got a soul, anyone's got a head, should be applying themselves to how do we construct that positive some vision, rather than trying to create a negative someone where we divide up the spoils in a world that's heating up and disintegrating from underneath our feet. Mm-hmm. So do, do you think that at a more general level, people do not seriously consider these alternative solutions just due to ideological motives or, or what? No, just because the political classes have ultimately failed us. They are unable to generate a vision. What is the vision of the reformist wing of the EU? A slightly different EU. What exactly is Macron proposing? Maybe we should have a little bit of unemployment insurance that's common to all Europeans. <gasps> oh, goodness me, the timidity of the vision. And, you know, and for all that everyone says about Trump, you know, on terrible things he's doing, and you know, he's a horrible climate change denying lunatic. I'm not denying it, right? But it's not as if the Europeans are doing much more. Let's be honest, right? And it's not as if we're actually drawing a line with the developing world and saying, all right, lads, stop dumping carbon into the air and we'll do you some transfers to help to compensate. No, we're not doing any of that. So until we actually get to a scale of talking about these things, we really are sort of, you know, putting the icing on the cake as the bakery explodes. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Okay, so Dr. Blythe, just before we go, would you like to tell people what are some of the best online places for them to get in touch with more of your work? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I have a website, but I never update it. Um, I spend my whole life in front of a computer, so the notion of spending even more time in front of it is quite frankly repellent. Um, I guess YouTube. There's lots of stuff on YouTube. So if you want to hear me talk about this stuff with a bit more sophistication and some slides, go have a look at YouTube. Okay, great. I will be putting that on the description box of this video. And so, Dr. Blythe, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was really a pleasure to everyone. Thank you, and thank you for the good questions. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.